Okay. Uh, we're going to go to the book of Luke together now. Um, we're going to look at a passage at the end of Luke. And after the sermon, we're going to have a prayer together with the elders for the team that's going to India. Um, you know that that's happening, right, uh, as a local church. Really, together, we are ascending body for a short-term missions trip to our long-term work over there in India. It's such a, an amazing thing what's happening, and um, we wish we could all, we could all go. Uh, but we, we go and uh, we'll, we'll have that prayer at the end of service. So let's, uh, let's, let's pray now for the word. To, Father, we pray for the word, uh, your word, to go forth, to be anointed to our ears and our hearts and our lives. Quicken us uh, to be attentive to your word. Quicken us to mix faith, to believe. Give us understanding and, and growth in our personal life and faith. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. The opening chapters of Luke, particularly 1 and 2, um, focus on the events surrounding the birth of Christ and cause us to consider this incredible truth of the incarnation, that, that God became a man, that the, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's, it's an astounding uh, truth that should have a sense of mystery about it and, and cause a sense of wonder in our hearts. And it's our opportunity today to look at a passage at the end of chapter 2 that looks at Jesus as a child. It's the only passage in the New Testament or the Gospels that does that. It looks at an event that happens when he was 12 years old. So let's do that uh, together. We'll note uh, in these verses that Mary and Joseph were uh, believers. They had faith. We've considered that together. They were remnant believers with a living faith and had honor towards God and were faithful and careful to obey the customs and requirements of the law. We see in 2.39, so when they had performed all things according to the law of God, you remember that, that uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day when they named him on the 40th day. There was the purification ceremony for Mary. Uh, there was the presentation of the child in the temple, the offering of the, uh, the birds, etc. We considered that before. And they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now, Matthew inserts history that's not recorded here. Matthew inserts the account of the Magi coming and Herod in his insecurities having the babies killed and Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt. And then they returned to, to Galilee, to Nazareth, but that's not uh, recorded here. But it would have been quite a journey from when they originally left for tax purposes and then had the baby and then with the flight to Egypt, not a flight on British Air or something, but you know they went to Egypt. And, uh, and it would have probably been a couple of years before they returned. And they returned to Galilee, specifically to Nazareth. And this around Galilee is where Jesus would grow up as a boy. And eventually, when he began his public ministry, would be ministering and teaching and doing miracles in these little villages around 
this beautiful lake or little sea of Galilee. Um, Perhaps some of you have been able to go there. I still have it in my heart that one day as a church we'll be able to do a trip to Israel. We were planning that and then COVID came along. But one day we'll do it. And to go to the Sea of Galilee particularly is so special. To go to the ruins of Capernaum where so many miracles, the healing of the leper in in the synagogue and the foundation of the synagogue there is dated for the first century when Jesus was there. It's amazing to walk around there and consider his public ministry. This is where uh, they return to uh, the Galilee area, specifically to Nazareth. He will begin his public ministry uh, when he's uh, 30, when he is baptized by John the Baptist. That's in the next chapter, chapter 3. But there is a gap in the, in the record, there's a, a silent uh, gap between when he was a baby to when he is 12, and then another longer gap from when he is 12 to when he is 30. There is nothing said, but we have this one incident in the middle when Jesus was 12, and we'll look at it together. In verse 40, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Let's uh, break that up a little bit. First of all, the child grew. And and Luke, who is particularly interested in the the humanity of Jesus, the Son of Man, makes note of the fact that the child grew normally, physically, as a child, developing as a human being. And he became strong. Notice that. He became. It was a process. Growth, development, learning. He became strong in spirit, referring to his character, his soul, his mind, his intellect. And he was filled with wisdom, incredible understanding and insights, as he would later demonstrate uh, through the Gospels. But even here, as as a boy, and it says, and the grace of God was upon him, the blessing and the hand of God upon his life. And then Luke gives this story as an example of these things. And we see here in in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And again, it shows the godly, faithful uh, character of his parents. Uh, It was required that Jewish males would go to Jerusalem three times a year for the pilgrimage for the feasts. Um, And sometimes the wives could or would accompany them, like Hannah did back in Samuel, that year by year they went to Shiloh. But here it says, the parents, plural, went every year. Mary also went with Joseph every year to Passover. Did they take Jesus with them every year? We, We don't know that. It's very possible or probable. What we do know is they took him this year when he was 12, but probably uh, each year, I would imagine. And now he's approaching 13, where he would become a man or uh, a son of the covenant, bar mitzvah, when he would hit 13. And it was not uncommon that when they were 11 or 12, certainly they would take them to see Jerusalem to be acquainted with what it would mean to go to the temple on the feast to become a man or a son of the covenant. In verse 42, and when he was 12 years old. 
And again, this is the only inspired account we have of Jesus' childhood. So it should get our attention. There are second century writings by the Gnostics and in the apocryphal writings, uh, which have stories about young Jesus when he would do miracles and, and heal a bird and things like that. They are fictional. They are not in the inspired account. But when he was 12 years old, they went to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Which feast? The Passover. And as we have considered together many times, the Passover was an annual commemorative feast that looked back to when the Jews were delivered from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. It was a commemorative feast, but it was also prophetic in nature in that it looked forward to the Passover lamb, the ultimate lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And it was this young boy, Jesus, who would grow to a man, enter his public ministry, and and, um, fulfill that as the lamb of the Father. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now, when the Jews, the pilgrims, would go to Jerusalem, they would travel in long caravans of of carts and covered wagons and and donkeys, and some would walk and rotate on the the carts, etc., this long 67-mile journey to Jerusalem. And uh, it would include your family, your immediate family, your cousins, your aunts, and others from other villages, and it would end up being a long and uh, you know, a lot, lot of people gathered on that journey. It says they went to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had finished the days, the feast was seven days plus one. It was an eight, eight days long. When they finished the days, uh, some would only go for the first two days and then they would leave. But again, another tribute to Joseph and Mary that they stayed for the full time when they had finished the days They returned, and as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. What an interesting phrase. Lingered behind in Jerusalem, and his mother, and Joseph and his mother, and notice that it doesn't say his father and mother. It says, and Joseph, who was not his biological father because he was the son of God, Joseph and his mother did not know it. And again, when you consider the context, you maybe understand how that might be possible, that they would travel a day's journey and not know that their 12-year-old boy was with them. Because there were sometimes the men and the women would travel in different groups. Uh, They would be with different members of the family. And somehow they said, okay, Jesus, are you ready? We're leaving Jerusalem. Okay, everyone. And they got, and Jesus lingered and stayed, and they did not know, and they traveled perhaps thinking that he was with the other person or something like that. At the end of the day, when they stopped and they began to camp, okay, where's Jesus? Jesus! You take the back of the camp, I'll tell you, they begin searching and panic gets into the heart. Have you ever lost a child? Hello? It's a scary thing, even for a few minutes. I think in my duration as a father, I've probably lost all of my children at some point. We used to have four children. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But it's a scary thing, isn't it? When you, for a moment, you, you, oh my gosh, your heart, you, oh, it's it's a horrible feeling. And they realize that they have been traveling 
for a whole day and they did not know where he was. So, verse, where are we? Verse uh, 44. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Later it tells us they did so anxiously. Verse 45. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. So they first searched the company and the camp, and then they decided, listen, we have to go back. We could assume they didn't stay overnight. They perhaps went straight away back to Jerusalem, seeking him, seeking him on the way and in Jerusalem. And this was another day's journey back. And with a little bit of you know, humor, tongue in cheek, but also a serious uh, point we could make, is if you leave Jesus behind, when you realize it, turn around and go back. That's a good principle, isn't it? When you feel like, wait, where is Jesus? It's time to turn in our hearts and go back and to find him. It reminds me of Song of Solomon 1.7, where it says, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. In other words, this is the voice of the bride in Solomon looking for her beloved. Where is he? And there is an answer. It says, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. Why do I read that verse? Because if you don't know where to find him, this is the answer. The footsteps of the flock where the shepherd's tent is. And this is where they find Jesus. Notice this. It was after many days in verse 46. Um, Now it was after, sorry, three days, they found him in the temple. And that's another good principle. A good place to look is in the temple. It's where the shepherd's tent is. It's where the flock is. Follow the footsteps of the flock and you will find him. Go to the temple. Go to where the word is being expounded, where there is preaching. Oh, there he is easily found. And will find and search your hearts. And look at this. Where did they find him? Sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. He's listening. These are the most, these are the thinkers, the scribes, the teachers. They have dedicated their lives to the scriptures and, and they are there after the feast. It's not uncommon. These, they would gather together and they would consider the scriptures together. And, and, and the young would come and listen and learn. And here is Jesus sitting in the midst and it says that he is listening and asking questions. And we know that through the Gospels, this was often a method that Jesus used to search the heart. It was with questions, penetrating questions that would search and expose the belief systems and the errors and the misconceptions that people would have. That question would cut right to the heart. And we can imagine that that's how it was here. As Jesus would ask the questions to these great minds stroking their beards, they would be like struck by the incredible wisdom we already read. He was filled with wisdom. And notice this. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. 
And Luke often takes note of the response of people when Jesus would speak or act. We often read the words, and they marveled at his words. Never a man spoke like this. They were amazed at his teaching, etc., etc. And this was one of those times. This was unheard of. These men would never have experienced this before, that a young boy like this could confound them and ask questions that would just put them to silence. But here's a question. How did he know so much? And I'd like to take pause and think about that for a moment. How could he confound these experts? Well, some would say, well, this is God incarnate, and God knows everything. God is omniscient. So Jesus, who was God in the flesh, would know everything. God doesn't have to learn right? We might reason that way. And that's true, but it's true that God knows all things, and God does not have to learn in that sense. But it also says in the scriptures regarding Jesus that he grew, that he became wise. So to Consider this more. We have to pause and think about the incarnation. I'm sorry if you haven't had too many coffees this morning, but let's pray the Holy Spirit will quicken us and help us um, broach this subject, which obviously has great wonder and mystery to it. I remember one of the uh, Christianity Explores questions. Someone asked the question, I think it was about the Trinity or something. And in the moment, this is the answer I had. And I felt it was such a, a good one, not, you know, not of my own wisdom or anything, but I, but I said, it would make sense that there are questions about God that we can't answer, wouldn't it? Because we are talking about God. That there should be a certain sense of mystery that things we have to just uh, uh, believe by faith and accept as it is written. Uh, I don't know how many times I've spoken with Alison, for example, my children about the Trinity, and you know, you, you do your best. <laughs> but how can we uh, fully, uh, you know, gather some, you know, understand something like that? But anyway, I was reading R.C. Sproul. He does quite a good, a very good job uh, at some of this. But it is a wonder and a mystery. We are talking about God, God who became flesh, the, the incarnation, the Trinity, etc., and over the years, as we might expect and imagine, through church history, these doctrines of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, etc., have been attacked. There have been certain heresies that have come up against the church. And in response, the church has had to have certain councils where they very carefully study and define and agree on statements or creeds or definitions to counter such Heresies. One such council was in Chalcedon in 451 AD. And after they met together for some days, this is what they said about Jesus. He is acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the two natures being by no means taken away by the union of those natures, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, 
not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what that's saying simply that he is, it is the unique person of Jesus Christ. There has been none like him, neither will there ever be. He was one person with two natures. Uh, not two natures that were merged, that he was 50% God and 50% man, but two natures that were not merged, not separated, existed in the one person, in that he was 100% God and 100% man. You say that's 200%. I know. But that's the mystery of it, the incarnation, the God-man, Jesus Christ, that he had uh, two natures in one unique person. Both natures retaining their own attributes. In other words, if his human nature was deified, he would no longer be fully human. And if his divine nature was humanized, he would no longer be fully divine. But he was both, and that has to be carefully guarded, and the scriptures are careful to do so. But sometimes he would express himself from his human nature, and other times from his divine nature, right? That makes sense. So, for example, when we see that he is weary or hungry or thirsty or tired or expresses a certain emotion, we understand that that's connected to his human nature. Likewise, when we read accounts where he can read the thoughts of people or prophesy or do miracles or heal or walk on water, etc., obviously that's an expression of the divine. But if the human nature is tired, the divine nature is not tired, right? The natures are united in one person, but they are distinct. Now, that's easier to understand when we consider weariness and hunger and emotion, etc. The divine nature would not be hungry, would not be tired. But what about knowledge? And this is our question. This young 12-year-old boy with such knowledge and wisdom, how did he have that knowledge? Did Jesus know everything all of the time? Well, in his divine nature, yes. But in his human nature, only if it was revealed to him. What do we mean by that? Well, the verse that says, the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son only the Father. So that verse clearly says that there was something that Jesus, the Son, did not know. Only the Father knew it. So that helps us maybe understand. It's like the Old Testament prophets when they prophesied. They did not know that in their own being or humanity or wisdom, but that was something that was divinely revealed to them by God. Now, there is another, another passage, it's, it's quite challenging, but uh, we're in church, we've got the Bible open, we're learning together, let's go there, to Philippians chapter 2, it's sometimes called the kenosis passage, which comes from a Greek word where it says that he emptied himself, and there are lots of questions about that, what did it mean when God became a man, when the word became flesh, when he became, came here, uh, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Let's look at the uh, verse, Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality to, with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
right? So it says he was God, but when he became a man, uh, he did not exploit the fact that he was God in his experience and in his public ministry, but, verse 7, made himself of no reputation. Some translations say he emptied himself. That's the kenosis point there. He made himself of no reputation or emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? Did he empty himself of his divine attributes? Did he empty himself of divinity? Did he stop being fully God? And I can remember now, though it be 30 plus years ago, I can remember sitting in the Bible class when the teacher was explaining that one of those moments where it was very helpful for me. And he said this, in the kenosis, in the self-emptying of Christ, he didn't lay aside his divine attributes, but listen to the wording, it's very purposed. He laid aside the independent exercise of those divine attributes, right? In other words, as the perfect bondservant in submission to the Father's will, he chose to lay aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes, but rather only to function and minister and act according to the perfect will of the Father. So that helps us understand in some measure that the, fa- the son was the perfect uh, doulos. We'll come back to that in a moment. Also, of course, we understand as he was learning that he had uh, one great advantage that will be found there is that his human nature was untarnished. He didn't have an old sin nature like you and I. Can you imagine that? What a better student you would have been without an old sin nature where your mind wasn't darkened or muddled or clouded with uh, any, any darkness. No lust, no pride, no envy, no sinful thoughts, no selfishness. But the capacity as Jesus had to love the Lord with his whole heart, mind, strength uh, all the way through. And then lastly, there is a verse There's a verse in Isaiah 54. It's a messianic passage where it says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. He's given me the tongue of the learned and the ear of the learned. The learned meaning, you know, to have that clear understanding as a, as a fully educated thinking person. And Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, would awaken and give the tongue and the ear of the learned. So the Holy Spirit is teaching him, and as he is growing and becoming uh, f- full in wisdom as a young boy, he would possess profound understanding. So, take that way. If you're on pause, you can press play again now. Let's go back to the text. This is quite a spectacle that Mary and Joseph, after they have looking, they come to the temple, and there is their 12-year-old boy confounding the, the wisdom of men in the highest level. And this is in verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed... 
And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Have you ever heard your parents say that? <laughs> why? <laughs> Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. So we can sense a little scolding here. Why did you do this? But note, it makes clear reference here. She makes clear reference to Joseph as your father, your father and I. And she certainly slipped up by saying that because that was not correct. And maybe it was her saying that that evoked this, this epic phrase, this response that Jesus gives us in the following, uh, following verse. And typically he answers with questions. Verse 49, he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And he sets her straight. My, my, your father and I, and he says, I must be about my father's business. There's an incredible uh, correction and statement. And obviously a self-awareness as a 12-year-old boy that he was in fact the son of God and God was his father. It was clear in his mind. His heavenly father. Now, let's remember, these are the first recorded words of Jesus, and they are in our Bibles for a reason. Because this expression, this phrase, this statement, sets the stage for the rest of his public ministry that would begin when he's 30 years old, that he would be about his father's business. It would set the tone for everything he would ever say and do. It was to serve and to glorify the Father and perfectly fulfill his will. At all times, it was his life's purpose and mission to be about his father's business. Notice the words there. I must be. It is needed. It is necessary. There is no option here. This is why I came. It is that I must be about my father's business. Uh, let me read you a few other must-bes in Luke in the book of Luke 4.43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. I must because for this purpose I have been sent. Luke 19.5 with Zacchaeus, when he tells him to quickly come down, he says, for I must stay at your house today. And that will be framed because that was the will of God at that moment, that divine appointment, that meeting, these words, this statement. It was according to the will of the Father. And most importantly, Luke 9.23, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and, must, and be raised. He must do that, for that is why he came. He must be about his father's business. Let me read a few more verses from the book of John. 5.19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Right? I've laid aside the independent exercise of my divine attributes, though I am God in the flesh, and I have chosen as a, a doulos, as a servant, to be submitted to the will of the Father in the plan of the Trinity. And I, I, 
only do what my Father says and does. 5.30 of John. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 14, 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And in Matthew 26, 39, this is in Gethsemane, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So they came in and they saw him and he makes this statement, I must be about my father's business. But they did not understand the statement that he spoke to them. And of course, how how could they? How could they fathom, though they'd heard it and had it reconfirmed and pondered these things in their hearts and of course had faith towards these truths, How could they fully understand who he was and what the father's business, what what does that mean? I must be about my father's business. But by the Holy Spirit, we do have a measure of understanding. We are growing in understanding what that means as we are Bible taught and spirit taught. And also the disciples and Mary included, after the resurrection and after Pentecost, they would have understood what that meant, why Jesus came to fulfill the will of the Father and to be about his business. And it is our privilege also to be about our Father's business, that we are called to his business also, for his business is about people. It's about ministering to people. It's about affecting people. It's about uh, discipling people, seeing people saved and come to the saving knowledge of Christ. That's why we have an evangelical church planted here in this town, to reach the community and beyond, to be about our Father's business, and that is praying, and that is sowing, and that is speaking, and that is going, and creative means that we can connect with people. We are his feet and his hands. We are his body on the earth with a purpose and a mission to be about our father's business. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept these things in her heart. He was subject to his earthly parents. That was, of course, God's way, God's will that would be honored Luke shows again that Jesus grew in the last verse. He finishes again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And this is how the chapter ends. Now there will be a further gap until he is 30, until he comes back onto the center stage to be anointed by the Holy Spirit in beginning his public ministry at his baptism. And we follow that through the Gospels. We spoke of the musts of Jesus according to his calling and his purpose. And there is a must that is extended to every non-Christian. And it is that you must be born again. And I hope you're born again. It will be such a terrible thing to have a church and people come to the church and some are not born again. 
They are coming to church, but they are not regenerated by the Spirit. They are not illuminated. They are not baptized into the body of Christ at all. Or if you're listening online this morning, you're not sure if you're born again. This is the moment. This is the opportunity. This is the the very heartbeat of the gospel, that God so loved the world. He gave his Son. And the Trinity expressing that heart and unity. The, The Father sent the Son, and the Son laid down his life and went to the cross to make a way for our salvation. And if you're not sure of your salvation today, please put your faith in Jesus as we close in prayer. So, Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity, the privilege of studying your word together, of gathering in faith with open hearts and minds and open Bibles, and that you would teach us by your Spirit. We thank you for what we've considered in Jesus as the, as the servant, as the one looking to do the will of the Father. Oh, we thank you for our calling and our privilege and opportunity to respond to you, to honor you, to do your will best we know how. And we, we are prone to wander and we stumble and we fail. Oh, but Lord, you are faithful to keep us, to convict us, to bring us back again and again to quicken us according to your word again and again, that we would go forwards with a living faith in the living God. But if you're listening this morning and you're not sure of your salvation, just in your heart say, Jesus, I put my faith in you, for you are the Savior, and I ask you to save me today by your grace and through faith that you would give me the gift of eternal life in Jesus. Thank you for saving me today. And all of us here, we thank you for our salvation that was given, that we have, that we possess. What an amazing gift and blessed assurance we carry. We pray you'd use these words in our life, in our spiritual lives, in our walk with you. Give us ever-increasing fervency and wisdom and faith, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.